I don't know. It says it's live. We're just going to go with it. That hasn't come. Oh, there it is right there. Okay, that is on. Ah, put that there. Ready? Yep. Sin and Shin. Sin and Shin. Which is the Spock. You can do it, Charlie. Trick, what do you want? Oh, yes, it's the Spock thing. Okay, there we Sin go. Sin and Shin. Also, two front teeth, sharp breast teeth. The number. Rulers, persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you your righteous law. Pause. Great peace have I, have great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are done. All right. And I think today is the 27th. That, okay. All right, here we go. Let's see. It says, 27 May. He crowned the king and gave the king him an even better crown. Hello, can we help you? One of the privy councillors of Scotland beginning in 1628 was Archibald Campbell, the 8th Earl of Argyll. In February 1638, when Scottish people of all ranks signed the Scottish National Con Covenant, an oath that bound them to keep the church free of governmental control, Argyll did not sign it but tried to persuade the king to compromise with the signers, now called Covenanters. However, by November, he had joined the Covenanters and immediately became one of their leaders. When King Charles I visited Scotland in 1641, he recognized Argyll's prominence by making him a marquis. Argyll helped him with Solemn League and Covenant of 1643, in which the signatories swore to maintain the Reformed faith in Scotland. After the execution of King Charles I in England, Argyll, a supporter of the monarchy, personally crowned Charles II as King of Scotland at Scone on New Year's Day in 1651, the last coronation of a king in Scotland. Cromwell's Commonwealth temporarily replaced the monarchy, but in 1660, Charles II was restored to the throne, and Argyll went to London to congratulate him. Friends warned him that there was danger ahead, and the king never gave him an audience. Instead, he ordered that the Marquis of Argyll be imprisoned for treason in the Tower of London, where he was kept in chains throughout the summer and autumn. In December, he was sent back to Scotland to stand trial before the Parliament in Edinburgh. The verdict of the trial was a foregone conclusion, for the king wished him to be executed. The young lawyers who finally agreed to defend him were harassed and not given enough time to prepare a proper defense for the charges against him that he was a covenanter, that he had cooperated with Cromwell, and that he had questioned the divine right of kings. He was found guilty of high treason and sentenced to be executed at Edinburgh on Monday, May 27, 1661. When denied a last petition to the king, he responded, I had the honor to set the crown on the king's head, and now he ch hastens me to a better crown than his own. He was allowed to spend his last weekend with his wife, and during those two days he felt a calm and courage he attributed to the special mercy of God. 
He told her, for my part, I am as content to be here as in the castle, and I was as content in the castle as in the Tower of London, and there I was as content as when at liberty, and I hope to be as content upon the scaffold as in any of them all. On the fateful day, that Monday, he rose early to write letters and see friends. He warned his minister friends that they must either suffer much or sin much. To his daughter-in-law, he wrote, What shall I say in this great day of the Lord, wherein in the midst of a cloud I have found a fair sunshine? I can wish no more for you, but that the Lord may comfort you and shine upon you as he does upon me, and give you the same sense of his love and staying in the world as I have in going out of it. He wrote King Charles, adding the prayer that your majesty and your successors may you always sway the scepter of these nations and that they may be blessed, a blessed people under your government. When the two o'clock execution neared, he walked to the scaffold, a model of decorum. The ministers <clears throat> prayed and he spoke his parting words. I bless the Lord. I pardon all men. I, as I desire to be pardoned myself. Reflection being involved in politics was dangerous business in the 1600s. To be on the losing side often meant a trip to the scaffold. Yet Archibald Campbell and many others like him were willing to give, I gotta sneeze, to give their lives to stand up for God's people and God's principles. How seriously do you take your role as a citizen? Might God be asking you to do more than merely vote? Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do or say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Jesus. Good stuff there. Okay. Oh, a couple of prayer requests, I think. Let's see here. I have. Oh, yeah, Daniel. He does the uh, Bible in 10 podcast. He's in Hopton near Dis in the UK, which is, you got London here. It's just a little bit north and east of London, kind of on that bump on the uh, bottom part of uh, the UK. He wants to start a Superior Word Satellite Church there. He'd like prayer about that. And uh, just one person. Uh, oh, yeah, this is a video somebody sent me the link to, and I forgot uh, that I had written that in the prayer section, but uh, uh, I saw this video before, and this lady sent it to me today, and it was good enough to uh, repeat, and you can uh, pass it on or go check on it on YouTube. It's just one person, over 100,000 saved. It's Frank Jenner, told by David Smethurst. So if you want to listen to just a very, very good video that's about eight minutes long as to why you should hand out tracks, you'll be blessed if you watch it. It's just one person, over 100,000 saved, Frank Jenner, told by Dave Smethurst. If you can't find it, then email me and I'll send you the link. Great, great video. You'll understand the need to hand out tracks and maybe that'll give you the impetus to do so. Uh, Gene is having cataract surgery on 3 June and Claudia, our Claudia has a kidney stone and she is just begging for that to go away. So we want to keep her in prayer there. And then Becky in Colorado has got some uh, issues that are stressing her greatly. So we'll have all of them in prayer. And let's see, we'll go ahead and pray and get started. Heavenly Father, we certainly uh, come to you knowing that you can do all things. And whatever is your will, we would like to be in that will. And we would like to be participating in it properly. And we certainly pray for the prayer requests that were just mentioned, and uh, we would pray for each person that's having difficulties or troubles or trials in their lives, that you would be with them, help them through them, and they may not be named here right now. And Lord, we certainly have a list of people that are unsaved, family members that uh, from time to time 
we look over and uh, we would ask that you would be with them and uh, help them to make the right decision concerning uh, uh, their eternal destiny. And you can do all things. We know you're not going to force your will on them, but you can make things happen that will bring people to hopefully a desire to know you more. So we would pray for that. Lord, we pray for this class and that you would be with us and that it would be handled properly and that we would not stray from the intent of your words. We pray this that you'll be glorified and we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, oh, I thought I was going to sneeze while I was reading that thing. Wow. I feel like my eyes are popping out still. When you can't sneeze and you have to, terrible, miserable. Okay, we are in Ephesians chapter 2. So, uh, yeah, we're in verse 19, but if you need to go back, go wherever. Well, it's the start of a paragraph. Oh, it is. So, let's start where 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Okay. And it uses different words, but it says the same thing. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. So, they just kind of moved that around a bit and changed it, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, Ephesians 2.19. These words take us back to verse 12. So let me go back to verse 12. I got it right here. It says um, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. And he says right here, having no hope and without God in the world, and then he says, now, for, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. So he's saying that at that time, you were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and uh, covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Um, before I go on, just thinking today while I was driving over here, and, um, you know, people are always trying to insert the church into Israel in one way or another. And uh, somebody emailed me about something I said in a commentary last week on Ephesians, and he said, are, are you saying they're the same? And I don't quite understand what you were saying. And so I explained to him what I was saying there. But um, uh, and he, he does not believe that the church has replaced Israel. And obviously we don't hear either. But, you know, the way I worded something, he was kind of questioning that. I was talking about spiritual Israel. And what that means is that you have Israel, the people. They are in the land right now. That is the people of Israel. And if anybody says that it's not, they don't know very well what they're talking about. That is the people that were... Uh, scattered around the world. God has brought them back to the land for his purposes, and they are not all Israel who are of Israel, right? Does everybody know that verse from the Bible? So just because they are Israel, the people, it does not mean that they are Israel of God, which is Galatians 6, 16 or something, Galatians 6 something. Anyway, uh, so you have a spiritual component, the people of Israel who are the saved believers, faith in Christ Jesus, okay? Those are the Israel that Paul is referring to when he says not all of Israel are Israel, but those that are, are who he's speaking about, the spiritual body. But that doesn't negate the fact that those people are the bloodline of Abraham, and they are back in the land, and they will be someday all a part of the spiritual body of Israel. They will call on their Messiah, and they will all be in that. Right now, only a certain number of them are. But on the other side, the church is always trying to put its foot into Israel and saying, we're Israel, we've replaced them, et cetera, et cetera. And if you just think it through, this is what I was thinking in the car. If you just think it through, okay, Israel was brought out of where? They were brought out of Egypt, okay? Egypt is a picture of 
sin, our bondage to sin. It's a life of bondage. They were brought out, okay? They were brought in. They built a temple. temple. Okay, they built a temple. God is doing what with the church? Building. He's building a temple. We are living stones, okay? What Israel was and is, is typologically fulfilled in the church. Why would we want to be Israel? when that's not what God is doing. He is using them in typology to point to what he is doing. If we say we're Israel, we're just going back to being a type of what God is doing. And that's not at all what we are. We are not Israel. Just think it through. God brought them out of Egypt, bondage to sin. God brought the people of the church out of bondage to sin. Okay? The type matches the anti-type. Everything that God does with Israel somehow or another anticipates what God did either in Christ or for us or both, okay? When they took the uh, sacrificial goat or the sacrificial lamb or the sacrificial heifer and they did something with it, that pictured Jesus in his work. They are Israel anticipating what God is going to do in the church, but that does not mean that the church has replaced Israel because God is still using Israel to fulfill certain things prophecies, etc., that have to be done. Why would we want to go back and be claim that we're Israel? We're not. We're a completely separate entity, and we are both Jew and Gentile within the church. So all you need to do is just think it through, that if we are Israel that was, you know, of old, and we have suddenly replaced them, then we're just fulfilling some sort of typology. Because that's the purpose of Israel, is to fulfill typology in order to come to what God is doing in humanity. Not just the church in general, but humanity. He's taking people out of the bondage of sin, human beings. And then, of course, he's building a church with it. He's building a temple, living stones, etc. So just keep that in mind, is that we are not Israel. The church is not Israel. There may be people from Israel in the church, but the Jews have not replaced the Gentiles. And I'm sorry, the Gentile church has not replaced the Jewish uh, Israel, etc. So just something. It's, it's, it, Israel still has to basically go through the tribulation. That's right. So do we want to go through why the tribulation? Would we want to be that? It's yeah, like, absolutely. You know, That's part of the final consummation of what God said. He's given them seven more years under the covenant, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Why would we want to say that this is anticipating something in us? It makes no good point there. Okay, so we have, um, uh, I'll read that again. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The commonwealth, the blessings, all of the benefits and rights of Israel, which is in Messiah. Okay, we now possess that. We are no longer strangers from the covenants of promise. The covenants of promise were to Israel. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the New Covenant, I hate to say it, but if you go read Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay? We are just brought into that. All right? So, um, having no hope and without God in the world. After that, Paul explained how both Jew and Gentile have been united into one fellowship. In further explanation of that, he says, now, therefore, it is a summary idea of what has been explained in those preceding verses. He then follows with, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. The word for stranger signifies an alien. The word foreigners is more closely aligned with someone who lives in an area 
but is not a member of the culture of that area. So you have foreigner being brought in. That would be the Hebrew word ger. And then you've got uh, uh, maybe, yeah, no, stranger. Stranger is, uh, yeah, stranger is an alien. Uh, anyway, I can't remember the other word for it in Hebrew, but there are different words in the Hebrew as well. You know, here's somebody use this word or that word. We talked about one in a sermon just a week ago, nokri, which means somebody that's completely foreign, like a, a woman that is, uh, you know, not the woman of the, he's not the wife of the man. She's, uh, he's with a prostitute, in other words. She would be a nokri, somebody completely foreign to it. So you got these different words, but the word stranger signifies an alien, okay? Like right now, the illegal aliens coming over the border, they are aliens. The word foreigners is more closely assigned with someone who lives in an area, but is not a member of that culture. Okay, you could, yes. stranger and alien. Yes, there's two words here. Okay. That's correct. And so, but the reason why I'm defining them is because his, read, what are your two? My two are um, foreigners and aliens. And then this one says strangers and foreigners, okay? So they've translated the first word, strangers and foreigners, between two translations. So I'm defining it so you understand what they are. So there's two different words that are being used. One is actually an, uh, an alien, okay? The other one is a foreigner that lives among you that is not a part of you. It would be like somebody that moved in next door that's got a green card. He's, yeah, he's just not a part of you, even though he's there, okay? Yeah, okay, so... Um, the word foreigners is more closely aligned with someone who lives in an area, not a member of the culture of that area. Abraham, for example, lived in Canaan. However, he was not a Canaanite. Instead, he was a pilgrim or a sojourner. He had free movement in the land and was friendly with those of Canaan, but he could not really have been called a citizen as they were, and he could certainly not be called a Canaanite. Next, Paul gives the contrasting thoughts by stating the word, but instead of being a part from the commonwealth of Israel as strangers and foreigners. The Gentiles are now citizens with, this is Paul's words, citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We have been brought into that commonwealth. Talking about the Gentiles, the people that are not Jews that were, and once again, you've got Jews that are actually not Jews, according to Paul. And, you know, he's not all of Israel or Israel, and then he goes and uh, Romans 2, where he says that, you know, a person isn't a Jew just because he's circumcised, but he's circumcised of the heart, okay? So he defines it uh, several ways to show that not all of Israel are Israel, okay? But he says, instead of um, uh, the Gentiles are now citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We have been brought into that commonwealth, and we have full rights as citizens of the nation. Just because we're not Israel does not mean that we do not participate in what Israel has been granted. And we have full membership in the household of God. The contrast is seen in the two words of each category. Those who are aliens now have citizenship. Those who are sojourners now have a household. Okay, Through the work of Christ, all people are entitled to these benefits if, if they will but reach out and receive what he has done. It is not automatic. We do not suddenly uh, become a part of this body just because we are born into a Christian household. For years and years and years, I traveled around the, the, the world in the U.S. Air Force, and at times people would say, well, are you, do you believe anything? And I would say, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, that's my mom and dad went to a Christian church, and so I must be a Christian. It doesn't work that way. You may be a Christian in name, 
but you are not a Christian unless you've called on Christ, okay? And it's possible. I've told this story before. When I was 14, I was in the back of a yellow Datsun B210 after leaving the Tabernacle Church, and the lady asked me if I wanted to receive Christ, and I said yes. Well, if I did, and I'm pretty certain I did at that time, after that, there was no discipleship. I, you know, I didn't go to any church where they taught doctrine or anything like that. And so uh, the, I probably wasn't lying to anybody when I was overseas saying I'm a Christian. But, you know, you, you are not born into Christianity. You are not born into the rights of the Commonwealth of Israel just because your parents are Christians. You yeah, have to receive Christ. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Life application. Paul's words again show us that through the work of Christ, we have a new status. He doesn't say that we now have the right to citizenship as if it is something future and which could be lost, nor does he say that we now are accepted in order to be welcomed into God's household, as if we could do something which would cause that door to be shut. Rather, he states the transaction is complete in Christ the deal is done. Once again, Paul's writings always reflect the doctrine of eternal salvation. You're not going to find anything in what Paul writes that says you are not saved once and forever saved. You're not going to find that. And Paul is where we get our doctrine during the church age. Obviously, the other epistles are there for our edification and instruction as well. But when it comes to what happens to the believer, especially the Gentile believer in Christ, go to Paul's writings and you will not find him say, oh, you can lose your salvation if you've done A, 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 or A. It's not going to happen, okay? The deal is done. You are saved by the blood of Christ, and you will remain saved, okay? 220. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Okay, I, it's pretty much the same. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And the word stone is, uh, it's inserted. It actually says the chief corner. But anyway, here we go. Paul now more fully develops the words of the previous verse. I got an itchy nose now because I had to sneeze and I'm sorry. Paul now more fully develops the words of the previous verse, which noted that the Gentiles are now, as he said, members of the household of God. This household is being built into an edifice. The nature of the edifice will be explained in the next verse. But for now, it is noted that this household was built, Paul's words, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, okay? Some people will say that uh, Paul says, I laid the, the foundation, okay? And they say, therefore, the apostles, blah, blah, blah. I, I can't remember exactly what it was said, but I was in a class with somebody, and this guy thought that he was an apostle because he, like Paul, can lay the foundation. Well, Paul's very clear what the foundation is. It's Christ. Okay, we don't have any authority outside of Scripture. Zero. I don't know how people can get so twisted in their thinking of that. But uh, once again, it says here, um, what's that? Yeah, hubris. I mean, it, that's a good word for it. Um, Paul said that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets right there. Okay, elsewhere it says that Jesus Christ is the foundation. And so you don't want to take something like this out of its intended context and suddenly form your own little doctrine that you can somehow uh, establish doctrine outside of the parameters of the Bible. You cannot do that. Okay, the meaning of these words is generally taken as, the, I'll read that again, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, 
that's what it's talking about. The meaning of these words is generally taken as an Old Testament, as the Old Testament prophets and the apostles. But this is not the full sense of the words. First, if this were so, it would have been reversed in the order by saying the prophets and apostles. Secondly, Paul uses this same term two more times. He does it in 3 4, I'm sorry, 3 5 and 4 11. In 3 5, he says, um, which in the other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Holy, by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So it's not speaking of the Old Testament prophets, obviously. And then in 4.11, he says, uh, let's see here, 4.11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Okay, so once again, it can't be speaking of the Old Testament prophets because he's talking about something that is happening in Christ right now. Okay, the edifice which is being built is built upon a foundation of these two categories. As apostles are a new, new covenant concept, they are in the preeminent place being noted first. However, it would be incorrect to assume that only new covenant prophets are being designated here by Paul, as will be seen. He's also talking about others, but he's not exclusively talking about them. Have you got something? You're looking worried. No, I'm not looking oh. worried, but First Corinthians 3. I'm going to talk about that next. <laughs> but in this but this brings in a seeming this brings in a seeming contradiction to 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. That's what you were going to read. Okay? So there you go. Hang on one second here. 1 Corinthians he looked worried. So okay, it says therefore no other foundation can anyone lay and this is what I was talking about. That than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, okay? So Christ is the foundation. And he's saying here in 3, um, what verse are we in? 2.20, uh, having built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, oh, I'm sorry, um, members of the household being, yeah, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay, Christ is the cornerstone, but he is still the proclamation of the prophets, the apostles and the prophets. So it's still the same foundation. He's the corner of it. They are proclaiming him from there Everything on. Everything is built off the cornerstone. Absolutely. The cornerstone is laid. And then... Everything is squared to that. That's right. In that verse, 1 Corinthians 3.11, that we just read that was worrying Burke over there. He was getting frustrated at me. In that verse, Paul calls Jesus Christ the foundation. How can this be resolved? It becomes discernible by Jesus' words back in Matthew, where he says the following. Let me take you back to Matthew. Uh, Okay, when are you leaving, Steve? How long are you going to be here for? Saturday, you're going to be here Saturday, and then after that, you're heading up north. So we're going to have right back down to summer levels of attendance. You might ask Linda if she wants to start coming back here shortly. Um, okay, 618, uh, 1618. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, in that verse, Jesus was not referring to Peter as the rock, meaning the foundation. The words of the verse do not agree in gender. We talked about this before, and thus it is not Peter who is being referred to. Rather, it is the proclamation that Peter had made in Matthew 16, 16, which said, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And that is what he was speaking about. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, this proclamation, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, is what the church is built on. Understanding this, the words of Paul become clear. The term apostles and prophets is not speaking of the individuals, but rather the proclamation of the individuals. The proclamation of the apostles and the prophets of any age, be it Old Testament or New Testament, whose words point to Jesus as the Messiah are what Paul is referring to. The prophets of old anticipated Christ Jesus. That can There can be no doubt if you just read Isaiah, if you read Zechariah, you read any of these prophets, what are they talking about? They're talking about the coming Messiah. Their words are a proclamation. They're a foundation or speaking of the foundation. Okay? The prophets of the church expound upon this truth. Okay? So you've got the Old Testament prophets speaking of it. You've got the New Testament prophets expanding or expounding upon this truth. Therefore, there is no need to exclude the Old Testament prophets from this verse, even though it is not an unrealistic possibility. Because when he says these in the other two cases, he's clearly speaking about prophets that come in the church age. Okay? And they're mentioned, for example, in the book of Acts. You'll see some people that prophesy. Okay? Once again, uh, I am not one that believes that uh, the gift of prophecy continues to this day. If you believe that, that's fine. You're going to have to support that by what those prophets, those supposed prophets say and how it can be reconciled with Scripture. There's nothing that any person has ever said since the closing of the canon of Scripture that has added anything to Scripture. Nothing. There's no need for it, okay? And the Bible itself would argue against it in about five or six different verses as well anyway. If people want to believe that there are prophets and they want to go to a church where somebody's proclaiming prophecy over them, that's their thing. They can do that all day long. I see no need to do that, no need to be a part of that, because it edifies no one. It does nothing but cause confusion within the church, and it builds up a lot of really big heads. But next, Paul says that Jesus, yes. What was the verse that, that, that worked this for you? 1 Corinthians 3.11. Next, Paul says that Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. This is a concept that goes all the way back to the 118th Psalm. That's a messianic psalm. It's a great psalm. It's a long one. But uh, there in Psalm 100, it's right before Psalm 119, which we read every week. But in Psalm 118, verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Wonderful stuff. So that is the, um, uh, the idea goes all the way back to there. It's repeated again and again and again in the New Testament, that particular verse, okay? And Jesus ascribes this verse in the Psalms to himself in each of the three synoptic gospels. Peter referred to it in Acts chapter 4, 11, and chapter 4, verse 11, and a similar Old Testament verse, which is found in Isaiah 28, 16, is used by Peter in 1 Peter 2, 6, and 7. Paul also refers to this stone in Romans 9, 33. So it's something that is repeated throughout the New Testament. It is very clear what's going on there. Christ is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone of a building is considered the most important of all. It is the first laid and it is that upon which all else is built. Everything else rests upon its surety as a foundation stone. 
if Jesus is not the Christ, the church could not endure, okay? The church is built on Christ, and it is an enduring entity. Nothing is going to stop it, even if people think throughout the years that they will. It ain't going to happen, all right? The stone is that which is most honorable, therefore, and it is that which is most evident. Such is Christ in the edifice which God is building. The chief cornerstone is Christ, and the foundation is the proclamation concerning Christ. From there, everything else will find its proper place within the edifice. As a final side note, if Peter were the foundation of the church, as Roman Catholics incorrectly claim from a misinterpretation and misuse of Matthew 16, 18, then Paul would have at least mentioned him in a separate category here. He does not. Peter was one of a select group, but by no means was he elevated to any high place or honor among them. And I will say this as well. If Peter was the foundation stone, then the church would have collapsed a long, long time ago. Okay, that's all there is to it. Christ is the foundation stone. He is the proclamation, the foundation. He is the capstone. He is everything. He is our all in all. And every single stone that is being built into that temple is only there because that stone is in Christ. And if you aren't in Christ, then you wouldn't be a part of that edifice. So everything comes back to Christ. Every single thing of what God is doing comes back to him and him alone. Life application. Verses like this one need to be carefully considered in order to avoid misrepresentation. I'm sorry, misinterpretation of them. This verse has been used by some to allege there is a contradiction in Scripture, something which is incorrect. I kind of alluded to that earlier. It has also been used by nutty people to make unfounded claims that they are prophets of God. That's something else I alluded to. And thus a more important part of the church than others. Again, this is something which is incorrect. It is Christ alone who is to be elevated in the church, and his word is free of contradiction. All right, now, just because these people, Peter was a fallible guy, Paul was a fallible guy, just because they were fallible people does not mean that what they spoke or wrote was fallible because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, people say, well, I'm a spirit-filled believer, and therefore, and then they go into illogical conclusions from there. That's why there's a problem with claiming these things now. The word has been written. It is all we need for our life for our doctrine, and for our practice. And if we go beyond this word, we will have error. That's all there is to it. And if we use this word incorrectly, we will have error. Okay? Somebody, actually a couple people emailed me about questions from the book of Acts this week. And I always have to go back and I have to say, be very careful with the book of Acts. It is a descriptive account of the beginning of the church. The book of Acts doesn't prescribe anything. And when you take verses out of the book of Acts and you say, see, we're setting our doctrine based on this, your church that you're attending is going to have bad doctrine. There's no way around it. There is no way around that. And I would say that the vast majority of doctrinal issues in the church that are incorrect, that are problematic, stem from an incorrect use of the book of Acts. I would say the vast majority of them. As a matter of fact, I can't think of a handful of them that won't go back to an incorrect reading of the book of Acts. Now, obviously, people disagree with about what Paul says, but most of the time, their disagreements will come because they have a preconceived notion about something in Acts, which they are then applying to Paul's words. 
You've got to be careful with the book of Acts. We'll be starting that very soon. We're in, what, chapter 17 of Revelation, 18, 19, 20, 21. We've got five more chapters, actually four and a half, because I'm almost done with uh, Actually, I started. I'm in 18.4, typing the commentaries now. So 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, whatever. we got still five because, yeah, anyway, five. Okay, and they're not long. I mean, we'll be done with that, I think, probably by Christmas or sooner. We should, I don't know. I mean, however many verses are left, there shouldn't be that many. So after that, we'll get into Acts, and hopefully we will do the Lord and, you know, the church justice by the evaluation there. But it is a very, very, uh, it's a book that you need to be very, very careful with. Okay, anyway, 221. So why does God, as he always uh, picked flawed people throughout all the money? Because all people are flawed. Because all he asked, why he does... No uh, yeah, he had no other choice than to pick flawed people. And the more flawed the person, the greater God will be glorified when he uses them. I mean, Paul speaks about that kind of it when he says that he's chosen the weak things of the world and the, you know, the downcast and the lowly or whatever. The, the, he uses all these words about us. And, you know, I, I tell people, if he can save a guy like Charlie Garrett, he can save anybody. And if he can use a guy like me, he can use anybody. So uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, he is a great God, and he can use anybody if he can use me. 221. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Almost identical. I'm not even going to read it. Okay. In this verse, Paul now explains what being members of the household of God means. An edifice was implied, but now we learn what type of edifice it is. He begins the verse with, in whom? This is speaking of Christ. He is the foundation, and it is upon him that the building is founded and continues to grow. The foundation is Christ. Everything is growing that is in him. Everything. I said that a minute ago. The only reason why we're a stone in this temple is because we are in Christ. The next words, the whole building, show that it is one building being erected out of many parts. But those parts are inclusive of both Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between the two, thus demonstrating the supremacy of the work of Christ. If a distinction was made between the two for the purpose of the building, then it would diminish his accomplishments and make our status within the building dependent on what we were before being joined through his work. And that is not going to happen. It is a work of God. We are being used by him. And there is no distinction. It can only be after receiving Christ that any merit is imputed to a person in the matter of good works for rewards. Nothing based on who we were, what our status was, how much money we had, how important of a family we came from. None of that matters. Zero. And you wonder why things are going the way they are in this nation right now. You wonder why there's things like Black Lives Matter out there. Is because they're trying to separate and build separate and build. Nothing is ever built properly when we do that. God is taking everybody in one, and only after we come to Christ are anything that we do being used in a positive way for the building of this church. That's it. There's no separate and build, separate and build. All they're doing is tearing down and dividing. That's the only thing that's happening in this nation with these stupid political agendas that they're putting out to the people of the world not just in America, but all over the place. This is a, almost a global thing going on right now. It is harmful, it is detrimental, and it is anti-Christian. I'll say that right now. 
Black Lives Matters is anti-Christian. It is Marxist. It's what? That's exactly. You know, people say Marxist, communist, just so you know, they're the same thing. Absolutely. If you don't know what Marxist means, just go read the Communist Manifesto. I read it a week ago because I'd never read it. And I thought, I want to know what's going on. It's pretty long. I mean, it's not, that won't take you too long to read it. It is the most ungodly document I have ever read, was reading the Communist Manifesto. Manifesto. Spectaculars is the president, or has been, very important head of Black Lives Matter. She is a self- Yeah, she's a Marxist. That's right. And she, here she, well, I, I won't get into her right now. I, 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 let's not get into her right now, but you're right. She is a Marxist, okay? But now I've lost my train of thought because mom had something she wanted Ungodly to say. Um, oh, yes. The Communist Manifesto is completely opposed to God. Everything about it. At the bottom of the Communist Manifesto are two names, Marx and Engels, okay? That's why when I say communism and uh, it's anti-socialism. No, not socialism, Marxism. They're the same thing. Okay. Anyway, um, it, it is important to understand this because what God is doing is perfect. And the things that we are doing can either emulate what God is doing or we can not emulate it and we can build something that will never, ever work. It will never work. And what they're doing right now with these agendas will never work. It'll only destroy Okay, so, um, yeah, but mom is right. The, the lady that is starting this thing or that is leading this thing is a Marxist. She's a self-avowed Marxist. Um, so um, let's see here. Where was I? Um, uh, yeah, okay, going on. As we, uh, we as believers in Christ are being fitted together, okay? That's what Paul's words, being fitted together. This gives the idea of the craftsman using the materials in a house to erect that house. Boards are precisely cut, stones are shaped, tiles are placed with care. Each person is a unique member of this building. Jew and Gentile, male and female, various cultures and ethnicities, all are being fitted according to the wisdom of the master craftsman. Now, I don't know if I'm going to speak about this later or not, but I'll say it right now because it came to my mind, is that when a building is started, okay, you say, I want to buy this piece of property and I want to build a house here. What do you do to get the house started? You hire a, survey. a well, you do the survey, but I'm talking about the building of the house. You've got to do something. You've got to foundation. hire somebody. Well, you, but long before you get a foundation, you've got to hire somebody. Concert. Well, you've got to, but who? Architect. Architect. There we go. First thing you do is you say, I want to build a house and this is kind of what I want. Can you help me with that? And the architect sits down and he figures out everything. He figures out everything. Because you want to save money. You don't want to buy 5,000 feet of electric wire if you only need 2,000 feet of electric wire. So he figures out that. He figures out how many cinder blocks you need. He figures out how much roofing you need. He figures out everything. And when you go outside of a house that's being built, there's always one big thing sitting outside. They're building it. What is it sitting? It's always sitting there. The permit case. No, not that. Bigger. <laughs> What? Dumpster. dumpster. Because even when a architect, did you say dumpster? No. Okay. You did. Okay. I know you did, but I thought I heard it twice. They have a dumpster. Even because, even though they have an architect and even though he is very careful about telling you things, there are errors in what happens. We bought this board. We only need six feet of this board. We cut off two feet. We have no other need for it. We throw it away. That cinder block got dropped. It's broken. We throw it. There's all kinds of waste in a house. 
that dumpster will be pulled out probably five or six times before the house is done, okay? If it's a regular sized house. The architect does do this and even he will make mistakes as well. So you don't just have mistakes with the contractors and you know, over, uh, you'll have, he figured out too much wire or too little wire. There's always going to be waste. When the Lord builds his church, he is like the architect, but he is perfect. And so every single thing that is needed for that building, down to the finest detail, will fit. Everything. There will be no waste. There will be no excess. There will be no uh, loss or, you know, not enough of, okay? Having said that, if Christ has redeemed you and he tells you that you were a part of that building, he will never cast you away as a piece that is not usable, okay? He has placed you into that building at the beginning. He will see you through to the end. Another, just think it through. It's not in the Bible, but think it through. It's another logical deduction for the doctrine of eternal salvation. God does not make errors. God is building a building. He has said that you are a living stone. He has said that you are a part of this being fitted together. And all of a sudden, you do something that upsets God. And what does he do? He takes the stone and he throws it in the dumpster outside. I'm sorry, there's no dumpster outside of God's building. All right? So think this through. Understand that God has a perfect plan. And if you are a part of it, he will perfectly fit you into that perfect plan. Okay? I, it, it, I don't mean to almost stress at this, but it's very annoying There's to see people... I know they just tear the doctrine of what God is doing apart and they don't appreciate the beauty of what God is doing. God is perfect. He will not make a mistake when he redeems you ever. All right. So I got that. Yes. In the temple construction, they was often another place other than the build site. That's right. The stones were fitted, and they fit when they put That's right. Let me say that again, because people say they can't hear you guys speaking. I got a couple emails this week about that. He said that when they built the temple, Solomon's temple, everything was cut outside of the temple area, and everything was brought into the temple area, and it was fitted together, and it fit together perfectly. It says in the Bible that no sound of an iron implement was to be heard. Okay, and that's kind of an example of what you're hearing there. They're out there doing their thing. God is building something out of stuff that's just stuff, and he brings it together, and it comes together just the way it's supposed to be, just like a master architect would normally do. Okay, but as I said, master architects will make mistakes. You will have workmen that make mistakes. you got all kinds of things. That is not going to happen with God. It will not happen, but that's a very good example of exactly what is being said. Okay. Um, and that's why if you say something like mom or you, if you say something, keep it short because they say they can't hear you and I have to repeat it just like I do in the prophecy updates. And so I don't want to get into a long back and forth about something. Um, let's see here. Where was that? Uh, wisdom. I'll read that again. Jew and Gentile, male and female, various cultures and ethnicities, all being fit accorded, according to the wisdom of the master craftsman. It is through this process that the building then, Paul says, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The verb is a present active one. It is ongoing and it is continuous in the nature. The building is a living organism which is being fitted together for the purposes of being a holy temple. Peter makes a similar note about believers in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll take you there. 
and he says, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and in verse 4, he says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected, oh, I'm sorry, coming to him, yes, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up in a, up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So, I'll go on because he keeps talking about this. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, this is another argument against hyperdispensationalism. What did Paul just speak about? Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter just said that Christ is the, the cornerstone. They both say he's the chief cornerstone, okay? Jesus said he's the cornerstone. Acts says he's the cornerstone. It says it all over the place. Christ yes. is the cornerstone, okay? If that is the case, is God building two buildings? No. Absolutely not. He's not building two buildings. Hyperdispensationalism fails because they fail to take the Bible in context. They say Peter's speaking to one group of people, he's the apostle to that group of people, and this group of people over here has nothing to do with them. That is for the Jews, this is for the Gentiles, and they have nothing to do with each other. I'm sorry, that is heresy. All right, there is one temple that's being built, there are living stones within it, but Christ is the chief cornerstone of that temple. Okay, so once again, hyperdispensationalism out. Like Peter, Paul saw that the temple in Jerusalem was merely, merely a type and a shadow of what God would do through the church. The word for temple is naos. It is that part of the temple where God himself resides. Thus, the church is to be considered as the holy of holies, the place where God meets with man. The verse finishes with the words, in the Lord. The verse began with, in whom? And it ended, it is ending with it ending on the same thought. It becomes obvious that the building is erected upon the foundation of Christ. It is built up in Christ, and it will be completed by Christ. This is actually seen in the words of Zechariah chapter 6. Let me take you there. Zechariah, and it says in chapter 6, Okay, 12, it says there, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus, yes, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the builder of the temple. And he is the capstone. It is all a work of Christ for the purpose of having a place where God may dwell among his redeemed for all eternity. Life application. Should you feel that you are not a valuable part of what God is doing in his church, consider this verse. A building is not complete without each piece of the temple in which he will dwell for eternity. 
If this is so, then you are most precious indeed. God doesn't make mistakes, and your inclusion in his temple is with purpose, intent, and love. And I, that's kind of funny that I said that because I, I didn't read the uh, comment today. It's almost what I said about four or five minutes ago. So anyway, let me uh, go back here. I want to read something else here really quickly. Um, let's see if I can find what I'm looking for. And I can't, so I'm not even going to worry about it right now. Okay, good. Okay. All right, 222. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Okay, a little, little different, but not much. The entire thought from verse 19 is as follows. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Therefore, in whom is speaking of Jesus Christ to verse 20, it is also the same term in whom of verse 21. Next, you also, Paul's words, is in the second person plural and is speaking specifically of the Ephesians. However, as Paul's letter is a part of scripture, it includes any Gentile who receives it and who is also in Christ. You also includes you. Those included in that thought are being built together. You've got the Jew, you've got the Gentile, we're being built together, all the Gentiles throughout all of the church age, all being built together. Each Gentile who receives Christ is like the Jews to whom we once were alienated from, being used as a part of the building of this temple. The words refer to individuals, not to groups. And the purpose of this process of building is, this is Paul's words, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The word for dwelling place is katoiketerion. It is used only here and in Revelation 18, verse 2, which I typed up two days ago, the term dwelling place is a literal and good translation of the word, but the idea of this dwelling place is that it corresponds to the temple, which was once a part of worship in Jerusalem. What was seen in types and shadows, which I talked about earlier, just as we were getting started, what was seen in types and shadows is now being realized in the church. God is literally dwelling in us, and we are each a part of the whole dwelling place which is being built up by him. The term God in the Spirit once again brings in the idea of the Trinity. The pulpit commentary notes that the temple is the habitation of the first person. The source of its life and growth and symmetry is the Son. The actual upbuilding and glorifying of it is by the Spirit. Life application. Consider what God has done in your salvation. He offered Jesus to us. By faith we received him, and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In this exchange, we were made a part of the temple, which is being built as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. As each of these points is recorded in Scripture, then why should we worry about whether God continues to accept us or not? Can God make a mistake? No. Therefore, our salvation 
by necessity, must be eternal. Thank God for what he has done. Now, there may be some plumbing down at the bottom of the temple where somebody is going to be placed because he failed to give God the glory. I have no idea how he's going to build these things and where he's going to put people. But when it's all done, every person that was redeemed by the Lord will be in that house, okay? And it'll be perfect. It'll be perfect. And glorious. And we will be totally content in it. Mm -hmm. Burke's got something. This dwelling place. Yes. Creator, God Almighty, in us. If that doesn't make you happy, then something's wrong with your happy button. He, he says there's something wrong with your happy button if it doesn't make you happy because God, the creator of the entire universe, is dwelling in us. So, and 1 Corinthians 6, 19, know you not that your body is the temple. That's right. Your body is, your the, body is the temple he, of the he, Lord. He lives in us. That's in right. Us. That is exactly right. So, in Christ all the time. Good stuff. Burke's, he's on a roll today. If you can't hear him, I'm sorry, but he's all happy over there about what God is doing in us. So be happy, be content, and know that God is doing a good thing. He's not making mistakes. He's not going to reject you if you've done something wrong. Um, uh, one of my friends, I get this email a lot, but one of my friends emailed it to me a day ago, and he said, um, this verse, I just got to this verse again, and it always bothers me when I hear this. Um, uh, what is the one where it says, be... Um, uh, when you stand before the Lord, um, uh, be counted worthy. yeah, that you be counted worthy. I'm, I'm not thinking of exactly how it says, but, um, uh, you know, basically, uh, just that you hope that you can be counted worthy, basically something like that. I don't know. Anyway, that is spoken to Jesus. I'm to the Jews by Jesus under the law. And he is speaking to them about that, uh, I wish I, if you can find that verse, let me know and I'll, I'll analyze it. I want to make sure that I say it properly though, but that is not something that we have to worry about. Okay. And it's something that I, like I said, I get this email a lot. Just type in the words counted worthy and it'll come right up and then I'll uh, give you an analysis of it. But that is not applicable to the people in the church because we are unworthy in and of ourselves. We called on Christ and he saved us. We are worthy because of what Christ has done. And so it does not apply to us what he is saying. He's speaking to the Jews. They're under the law, and they, they have a choice. They can either, did you find it? I think so. Oh, read it loud. Uh, let's see. Uh, okay. Counted where it should be like Matthew something or Luke something. Uh, it's Luke. Luke. Yeah. Luke 20. Okay. What verse? Let's see. Uh, Jesus answering said unto them, Child, Children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be counted worthy to obtain that world. That's not the one I want. No. Okay. Stand stand counted worthy before. It is Luke. I know that. Anyway, if you don't find it, it's no big deal. I'll read the life application while you're looking. Life application. Consider what. Oh, I did read that already. Okay. So we got to go on to 3 1. Don't worry about it. Oh, that's all right. Don't worry about it at all. But the, the verse does not apply to the people of the church. Just be aware of that. Okay. I don't think so. I think it's Luke. Pray that you may stand, uh, be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. That's what I'm looking for. Pray that you may be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Okay, I've just said what I need to say. And what that is, he is speaking to Jews under the law, and they have to come to Christ. Once they come to Christ, they don't have to pray to be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man because they are worthy because of the work of the Son of Man. Okay, these people are not yet saved and he's saying you've got a choice you can work yourself to death under the law or you can come to me and you i am the fulfillment of it 
He even tells him that. Come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right? It does not apply to people in the church who have heard the gospel message that have been saved by the blood of Christ and have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay, sorry about getting off on that, but I just wanted to get that out. Is that everything has a context, and the context must be maintained. The context of that is not to the church. We are worthy because of what Christ has done. It's a done deal. Okay, 3 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Okay, this one ends just the same. It's very short and abrupt. The words, for this reason, take us back to the previous chapter which highlighted in particular the bringing in of the Gentiles to the commonwealth of Israel. It, being a spiritual entity, means that we now share in the same benefits of that of Israel. Without having replaced Israel at all, by the way, God is working on a building, a household out of both Jew and Gentile, in which he will dwell. It is for this reason, Paul says, for this reason, that Paul begins his next line of thought. In the coming chapter, but especially in verses 1 through 13, Paul is going to meticulously weave two thoughts into one. These thoughts will be built upon, will be built upon the preeminent thought of the previous chapter, that of the Gentiles being grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. The first thought is an explanation of this new concept of the bringing in of the Gentiles. The second thought is the result of the first which is Paul's selection as the apostle to the Gentiles. That's Romans 11, verse 13, to both reveal this mystery and to provide instructions concerning it. This is Paul's job. He's telling the Gentiles about how they fit into this whole picture and how they should not be, you know, manipulated by people that say you're a Gentile and therefore like the Judaizers of Galatians were doing, like the Hebrew Roots Movement people of today are doing, is bad theology, okay? Paul is the one to explain to us, and that's why Peter says in his epistle, you know, that people are going to take Paul's words and they're going to twist them, they're going to manipulate them, and they're going to use it to their own destruction. What Paul says is clear, it is concise, but people will twist it. And it's funny how I had somebody, well, I'll talk about that later because it'll be during a sermon coming up. You got to be careful about what Paul is saying. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is giving us, that doesn't mean there are two gospels. It doesn't mean that the Gentiles are doing something different. They are doing exactly the same thing as any Jew that comes to Jesus. Exactly the same thing. But to make sure that that is understood, Paul gives his instruction. Because a Jew may not give the same instruction that Paul is giving. That's why God chose Paul is because he was aware of this. He was trained in the law. He knew what to say, and anybody else may twist it purposefully. Paul would not do that. Okay, so um, the reason why verse 13 is selected as the end of the insert of this two-pronged discourse is that it says, for this reason, I, Paul, in verse 1, and then it says, for this reason, I bow my knees in verse 14. Because of this, it seems that the insert thought runs especially from verse 2 to verse 13. Okay, so it's not really a parenthetical thought, but it is an insert of its own. After stating his name, thus designating the identity of the one whose task will now be explained, he further identifies himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is a phrase that he will repeat of himself in several other epistles. 
It shows the length that Paul was willing to go through for the sake of the gospel, even unto imprisonment. And it wasn't just one time. He went to prison again and again. Okay. Have you got something, Burke? I know. You, oh, okay. He called himself bond service, but that's that's right, bond servant, servant, prisoner, exactly. It further shows that the gospel is not chained, even if he is. Everybody got that? Okay. In essence, the chains of Paul reveal the will of Christ for Paul. As a prisoner, Christ is able to use him to show that his gospel can overcome any such obstacle. He's a prisoner, the gospel is not. The gospel extends beyond his ministry. It extends beyond his person, and it extends beyond his circumstances. All right? It shows the length that Paul was willing to go through for the sake of the gospel, even unto imprisonment. Okay, I said that. As a prisoner of Christ, Jesus is able to use him to show that his gospel can overcome any such obstacle. This truth has been borne out countless times in history since then, and it continues to be borne out in the world today. People are in chains for Christ. People are being slaughtered for Christ. And the gospel continues to expand despite those things. It is to be noted that there is an article in front of Christ Jesus in the Greek. It says, the Christ Jesus. Paul is showing that there is one Christ or Messiah and that he is found in the person of Jesus and in him alone. He is the Christ who was promised at the beginning, and it is he who is revealed in the message which Paul now proclaims to the Gentiles. I had somebody email me about the articles in the Greek this week. We talked about it a little bit. The articles are not always, they do the same thing in the Greek that we will do in the English at times. We'll throw in an article where it's not necessary. We'll, you know, and in the New Testament, you'll have articles at some point, and sometimes you will have no article with the same thing. It's not a fixed and fast rule, but there are times where the article is necessary to define something, and it should be translated. Sometimes it's not necessary at all, and you just skip over it, and scholars will be di divided on that. You'll have some that say this article is important. Some will say this article isn't important, and they're both trained in the Greek, okay? They're both wholly knowledgeable in the, both the Hebrew and the Greek languages. They went to a seminary for it. They been studying this word forever, and they will argue over whether that article should be put in or it should just be ignored, okay? So it's not a hard and fast rule, and it's something that we need to consider. But when something like this says, the Christ Jesus, it generally is something that probably should be highlighted, because there's only one Christ, okay? Paul will say, well, there are many Christs, and there are many gods, and, you know, he's making an example. He's not saying that there are really other Christs. There's one Christ. There is one God. But at times, you'll have these uh, debates about what Paul is saying. When he says there are many gods and even this and that, he's talking in a kind of like a superlative sense or something like that. He's not really saying that there's more than one God. Anyway, um, he is the Christ who was promised at the beginning, and it is he who is revealed in the message which Paul now proclaims to the Gentiles. From the very beginning, all the way through human history, there has been one Christ. God is working in Christ from the very beginning of time all the way through redemptive history, and he will continue to be working through the Christ Jesus for all eternity. He is our focal point for understanding what God is doing around us, among us, and for us, okay? Finally, Paul notes that he is Christ's prisoner for you Gentiles. The very purpose of his imprisonment, as well as all of Paul's sufferings, was to make the gospel known 
outside of the Jewish people. Now, it's not true that he only ministered to the Gentiles. He also ministered to the Jews. He said, when I um, I became like a Jew to convert the Jews, I became like a Gentile. You know, he says, I did this and I did that to become this to this person and that person. He did minister to the Jews, but his ministry was specifically intended for the Gentiles. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. The very purpose of his imprisonment, as well as all of Paul's sufferings, was to make the gospel known outside of the Jewish people. It was the Jews that pursued Paul from place to place. As they did, the message spread. It was often the Jews who brought Paul before the leaders of whatever area he was in. When they did, the gospel message spread. And at times, Paul was imprisoned because of the words and accusations of his own countrymen. And when this occurred, the gospel spread. The wisdom of how God transmitted the gospel both then and now is especially evident in such cases. Where there was a supposed triumph over the message, it turned out to be a victory for its continued spread. Hey, we read about that guy that was hanged in Edinburgh, right? What did the last thing he do? He prayed that the throne of the guy that was hanging him would continue, right? I'm sure the gospel spread through that. And the people saw him. They saw him go out there and say, I have my hope in Christ. And people were uplifted and the gospel spread even through that thing. I'll read that again. Where there was a supposed triumph over the message, it turned out to be a victory for its continued spread. When Paul was being arrested in Israel, he was being torn apart and they were carrying him up the stairs. And he said, can I please speak to the people? Right? Remember that account? And he, the guy said, aren't you an Egyptian? He said, no. Paul was speaking in Greek. He says, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm from Tarsus and I'm you know, all these different things. He said, I'd like to speak to the people. And then it turned around and he spoke to the people. Okay. And when he was speaking to him, he spoke all the way through the discourse until he got to one word, Gentile. And then they went crazy. They're throwing dust up in the air. They're pulling off their garments. They're going absolutely crazy because the Jews did not want to hear about salvation going to the Gentiles. That's the point of reading the book of Acts is to understand what was going on and why this message has gone the way it has gone, okay? And to this day, I just watched a video today of the Jews in Israel going after a, uh, a priest from one of the churches and beating him up, okay? They don't want to believe that they are not the top of the world. They want to believe that they are the top of the world, just like everybody does. You know what? America wants to be number one, okay? The Japanese think that they're the best society in the world. Sorry, Hidako. They, wherever you are, you think that you're the best of everything. You're not. We're just people. But the Jews have this in their culture. They have it in their mindset. They have it in their supposed relationship with God, which doesn't exist because they've rejected the God that uh, revealed himself to them. And they will have to learn that they are not the people that they think they are. That does not mean that they are not in a prominent place, that we should not be praying for them, that we should not be supporting them. Why? Because God has put them back into the land just the way he said he would. He has put them there for his purposes, and therefore we are to acknowledge that. But until they come to Christ, I'm telling you what, they do not want to believe that the message of salvation is the Christian message because that Christian message has been going to the Gentiles and they would be horrified to find out otherwise. And guess what? They will be. How do we know that? How do we know that? Let me take you back to the book of Zechariah, which we were in before. And we'll finish up our commentary on that verse in just a second here, but I think it's in um, 
think it's in Zechariah chapter 10, but it might be in 12. Uh, oh, yeah, it says in 12. This is after the tribulation period, and the, the Lord finally reveals himself to them. They realize that they have missed their Messiah, and it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They are finally going to come to know their Messiah. Then they will look on me whom they pierced, which is exactly what John cites in John 19, okay? Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo, and they shall mourn, and it goes on and says all the families that are going to mourn over this. They have been wrong. They missed the boat. And they're going to realize that they were wrong and that they were not the cream of the crop all along, that Christ is, and that we are accepted into Christ, Jew and Gentile, by faith in him. That's what they're going to find out. This is in the Old Testament. I mean, it's right there. If they, you know, I'm sorry, there are all kinds of things in the Old Testament that shout out the state of the Jewish people and they refuse to see it. It's very sad. But we do the same thing. Don't get me wrong. What? Thus the morning. Yeah, the morning will be great. That's absolutely right. But we do the same thing. I mean, we got people, I was talking to somebody just before we got started by email and uh, talking about people that are non-cessationists. In other words, they believe that the uh, gifts continue on. And my comment was, well, that's fine. They can believe that. But all that does is that makes them more important to other people that don't have the gift that they have. The Lord isn't going to do that. We all have gifts. We all have them in our own way. But if, to say that I have the Spirit because I speak in a tongue and you don't, I'm sorry. That's, that, all that does is it elevates people in an unhealthy way. We all do it. We do it in the church. We do it among nations. Not picking on the Jews. I'm just being real about the situation with them. Yes? Pentecost. The white Pentecost wrote the book, Things to Come. Oh, yeah. And the ruler, prime minister of Israel, sent him a plaque. Thanking him for this. Oh, I don't know to what extent they believed all that was going on, but he was shown that the Jews weren't done. Oh well, there you go. I'm I'm glad that they acknowledged that. They probably didn't. You know, I don't know if they comprehended everything he was saying. But what Burke said is that Dwight Pentecost uh, did a book called Things to Come, and one of the prime ministers at the time sent him a plaque thanking him because Pentecost was acknowledging that the Jews still have a place in the world. Okay, and People that can't see that are, you know, they, they, that's why we have the division right now. People supporting the Palestine, uh, you know, entity that is fighting against Israel. People that are supporting Israel that are fighting against the Palestinians. Why are we making these choices? Why are we choosing sides? It all comes back within Christianity to how we read this book. Okay, now other people obviously have other agendas. They totally reject the Bible. They totally reject Christ as the Messiah. They are obviously going to take most of the time the Palestinian side. Not always. I'm sure there are some good atheists that support Israel. I don't mean good atheists in the sense that they're good atheists. I'm talking about in their attitude towards Israel. Committed. Yeah, committed, committed atheists. Thank much better than the word good atheist. Anyway, but for the most part, you will see the world lines against Israel if they are not properly aligned with the Bible. And in the church, those who do not support Israel do not understand or have rejected the doctrine of dispensations. They've rejected the doctrine that the 
Israel is still Israel and it's not the church, etc. So uh, it's, it, uh, everything comes back to what God is doing and what God is doing, we cannot fight against. It's very clear that the Jews are not out, okay? They are temporarily out there on hold, Romans 9 through 11, but they will be brought back into the, you know, the right relationship with God. It is coming. Okay, um, let's see here. Paul is in prison because of the words of accusation where there was a supposed triumph over the message. It turned out to be a victory for its continued spread. Okay, let's see here. And then we've got uh, the chains of Paul are a way of showing empathy for his audience as they struggled with their own conversions. They may have lost friends, jobs, or even family over their receiving of Christ, but Paul was with them in the spirit. He was also subjected to such difficulties, and he was able to spiritually overcome them. Thus, his words were intended to show them that they could too. One of the greatest things in the world is when somebody suffers more than you, and yet they keep their faith. Because then you can say, well, I don't have it that bad, and that person can keep his faith. I think I say that in this sermon or next week's sermon at the beginning, the intro section. I'm telling you, when somebody can keep their faith through the difficult times, and you see that, there's no greater testimony. I'm telling you what. It's, you know, I, what about, the, who went to, uh, you didn't go to, um, uh, what's her name, um, Heidi's funeral, didn't you? Nobody here went to Heidi's funeral. Anyway, Heidi, a girl that uh, she was in the church a couple times, and uh, she's somebody I've known since I was this big, and she died recently, and I went to her funeral last Saturday. And um, uh, boy, I tell you what, here she she was diagnosed with cancer. She stopped working after about a month, maybe. I said, where's Heidi been? I said, did they move her back to the north north uh, branch? And, no, she, she had to quit. She's got cancer. A couple weeks later, she's dead. It went really quickly. Okay, I've known her most of my life. And when she, uh, when they, uh, during the funeral, before she died, she went out to uh, the park right at uh, the South Bridge on Siesta Key and she read a psalm and to comfort the people that were going to see her in her casket. And you could see the strength in her dying, knowing that she's dying very soon. And she was willing to go out and give people that example. So, you know, it's one of those things when you can see somebody do something like that, you know that there is a great deal of uh, uh, that you can go through before you face your own time. Oh, woe is me. Okay, that's that's the point I'm making. If she can do that when she knows she's dying within a couple weeks, then everybody was built up. Even a Jewish guy that worked with her came to the service and the next day came up to me and said, man, was that an unbelievable service and it was all hinged on what she did at the end everything else was nice there was music and stuff but i'm telling you it, everything hinged on what she had done the glory she gave to god at the very end of that that funeral anyway life application if you want a proper we're gonna have to finish because i'm not gonna get another one done i don't think three two I don't, I don't think it's possible um if you want a proper church age doctrine stick to the words of paul Everything else is written for our learning and edification as well. I'm not dismissing anything that the other apostles has written, have written, but Paul's letters are especially directed to the Gentile-led church age. They are our marching orders during this dispensation of time, okay? Once again, Peter's letters are not unimportant for us. The book of Hebrews is not unimportant for us. We get doctrine, we can get instruction, we can get edification 
from those things, but to understand our position in the church, what God is doing during this particular dispensation is for us the letters of Paul. As long, and I'll show you this. I mean, I've done this before just to make pe people feel uh, convicted, okay? But uh, let me take you here. Let's see. I know it's a little early. I hate to start to stop too early, but at the same time, I don't want to get halfway through and rush through a commentary, and then we've got that problem as well. I, I just don't want to do that to people. So, okay, here it is. This is Paul's writings out of the whole Bible. This is it. And people have been studying this. They've been analyzing this. They've been arguing over this for 2,000 years. We have not plumbed the depths of what are in these few pages of Scripture right here. If that's not something that should humble you, I can't think of what else is. And when I read my commentaries, you know, I go back and I'll read something and I'll think, I, sure, I forgot that. I should have added that. I could have added another page on that because there's so much involved. And that's just the mechanical stuff. That's not talking about the stuff that's hidden, like the chiasms and the, the uh, parallelism and all of the structures that are there that people find just arbitrarily. And all of a sudden, yeah, I've never seen that before. The amount of information here. So you have, this will take you, I'll bet you, I, I may be wrong, but I'll bet you this will take you less than an hour to read all of this. It may be a little more than that. Anybody think uh, maybe a little more? Anybody? Depends on how thorough you Yeah, read. well, I'm, I'm just saying read it. You know, something, you can read thoroughly like I do every morning, one verse, you know, but to just read it, and if you read it again, and again, and again, and again, eventually it's going to sink in. And if you just stick with this for a couple months and read this once a day or once every couple days, I mean, this is where doctrine is for our church age. So consider that. And I, I, I don't want to make people feel bad, but I also want them to feel bad if they don't. You know. So yes, at the same time, I don't want them to feel bad, but That's I do. A little amount of page here. That was all of Paul's. Writing. That's all Paul. That's it. There's nothing else. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. And, here we have a reason to do everything but read this word. You know, I'd rather have people read the whole word, just read the whole word. But, you know, when I listen to Paul, when we get to this part on my audio Bible, and like I say, I drive to the mall in the morning. It's probably a four-minute ride. I drive home. And then I drive to the projects on Saturday. I drive to church on Thursday. And I drive to church on Sunday. And that's about all the driving I do. And I'm done with Paul, I mean, before I even know it. I'm like... Just yeah, I just started. So I mean, please read the Bible, study Paul, think on what he says, and you know. Uh, no, well, Hebrews I am certain is written by Paul, but it is not a Pauline epistle because it's not signed by him. Okay, and so I would not include that. And the reason why is because if Paul wrote it, as I do believe, he is still writing it to the Jewish audience, and th that is why I believe one reason why Paul's name is not there. Is because if it was, it would immediately put up a divide. It's Hebrews, and it's just somebody that's a specialist in the law that knows exactly what he's talking about. I'm telling you, the book of Hebrews, we're going to have Hebrews. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Hebrews will be the last half of our sermon this week. And I only talk about a little bit of it, but there's so much wonderful marvel in the book of Hebrews. Oh, we got to go. It's got us here a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful chance to come into your presence and to go over your word. And uh, it's an exciting book, Lord, the book of Ephesians. My friend up in, uh, oh, Lee, I forgot where you live. I think it's Virginia. Anyway, he's up north. He, he emailed about how excited he is about the book of Ephesians. And I totally agree, Lord. I think anybody that listens to 
your word that studies your word and comes to the book of Ephesians will be blessed and will be built up by it. It is a beautiful book, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the chance to just share in your word, whether it's here or whether it's sitting in a home over in the UK, wherever people are. I know that hearing your word is a blessing to their soul. And so turn around and bless them as well. Give them a happy weekend, a weekend filled with prosperity and joy. And Lord, we hope that uh, we'll be able to all get together again on Sunday morning for church or better yet in your presence at the rapture. Either way, we'll be content until you do come for us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, the sorry.